The Israelite overseers realized that they were in trouble when they were told, of course they're being told by Pharaoh, you are not to reduce the numbers of bricks required for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. Of course, Moses and Aaron are very curious about what did, Moses, what did Pharaoh say. And the elders of the people said, May the Lord look on you, Moses and Aaron, and judge you. Because you have made us obnoxious. The word in Hebrew literally means stink, stench. You've made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Moses, Shuvah, returned, repented to the Lord and said, Why, Lord? Why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Pray, 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 do you uh, talk to God this way? Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you'll see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, Pharaoh will literally drive them out of his country. God said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, who the, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. This is God's word. You can be seated. So just a little review. Moses has that burning bush encounter with God, and in that, God sends Moses on a twofold mission. First of all, Moses is sent to Pharaoh to say to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let God's people go. But Moses is also sent on a mission to the Israelites to tell them this gospel, the gospel of God. So Moses, chapter 5, obeys God, and he walks to Pharaoh with a simple request. Exodus 5, verse 1, he comes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go that they may hold a feast for me. And he's speaking the words of God to Pharaoh. In fact, uh, I think, why a feast? And then you look at verse 3, and it says a three-day feast. Well, I think God wants to reintroduce himself to his people. So he wants to host a feast, a party in the desert. And that's the simple request. What's Pharaoh's response? It's not just no. Pharaoh's like, how dare you ask this of me? In fact, all you are are a bunch of lazy people. And he just turns up the heat on them. 
and he makes them perform a lot more with a lot less. More bricks, less straw. This is Egypt. Egypt may have the appearance of of the good life, but in the end, Egypt will always tell us that we have to do more, be more, perform more, because in Egypt, we never measure up. We're never good enough. We're never smart enough. We're never beautiful enough. The voice of Pharaoh is always screaming at us, give me more. That's our world, isn't it? So the situation for Israel goes from bad to worse. It becomes hopeless. They're in a place of despair. They're approaching rock bottom. Their spirit is crushed. See, we can read this story today and have a sense, though, of where it's going. So I think it's difficult for us to imagine the discouragement and the despair and the hopelessness that God's people are feeling at this time. Now, here's the question. Who put the Israelites in this place? At least in their minds. Who? Moses. I mean, Moses. Look at verse 21 of chapter 5. Verse 20, when they, when they left Pharaoh, uh, the elders of God's people, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they, they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You've made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and put a sword in their hands to kill us. In other words, what are you doing, man? Like, why don't you just uh, go back to your desert and, and, and just stop talking and, and, and leave this whole thing alone because you're killing us. I'm just going to say this right now. Any leaders here? Anyone in in a leadership position? Leadership's hard. And I know some in this room are going to have a Moses-like call. Um, You're going to have that kind of call in your life. And if you think that that call means a bed of roses for you, uh, you need to think again. You're you're so wrong. And I don't care if it's uh, leading... Uh, your family, or I don't care if it's leading a football team, or if it's having a leadership position in the community, or or, or whatever it might be, um, it's hard. And at this point in the game, I'm sure Moses feels like a complete failure, because by human standards, this whole project is one of a perceived failure. But, you know, I, I, I take comfort in, in, in this text. I take comfort in texts like Isaiah 6, where God uh, puts the call in Isaiah's life. And that's that whole, whole text where uh, Isaiah encounters God. And he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the Lord. And then God puts that coal on him and touches him and heals him. And then it culminates with, with God asking the question of Isaiah, who will go for me? Who will stand up? Who will lead? And Isaiah's response is, here, my Lord, send me. In fact, that text had a profound impact in my life um, because I prayed that same prayer to God at a, young, at a younger age when I was at Wheaton College. Literally on the tracks one night, literally like, I could just sense, he was saying, who will I send? And I just prayed to him, Lord, send me. And we stopped there and, and we failed to read the next verses because what God tells Isaiah next is basically the ministry that I'm going to give you is, is, is one that's going to have all the perception of failure. 
And see, what we ought to do is, is, is never measure any leader or our own leadership or any ministry or someone else's ministry by worldly standards, the worldly standards of success. The pastor that just pushed this in my life, who I got to just serve under, uh, a humble, godly man of God, Kent Hughes. And I'll never forget him just pulling me aside one day and say, Rod, you need to learn at a young age how to measure success in ministry. And he says it's one word. Faithfulness. Be faithful. Be faithful to God. Be faithful to his word. And so Moses here isn't being a a, a failure. He's just being faithful to God. But I feel for God's people because... They're just in this place, too, where, where it's gone from bad to worse. And some of us right now understand this place all too well that Israel's in. I mean, some of us right now are discouraged. Some of us have had our spirits crushed. Some of us right now might even be in a place of despair where we look at our lives and it just it looks hopeless. I mean, life can do that to any one of us at any time. And Exodus 6 is here to tell the believer what it is that we possess when we're in this place. In fact, I think it's one of the great chapters in the Bible to anyone who's discouraged or in despair, crushed in spirit and feeling hopeless because God, look at what God says. Verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand. Pharaoh will let them go because of my mighty hand. Pharaoh will drive uh, my people out of his country. Pharaoh or, or Moses, get ready. I'm about to act. And you're going to see it. In fact, I love how, how, how God puts this um, because Pharaoh, if you remember all the depictions of Pharaoh in that day, whether it was on the pottery or on temples or, or buildings, was uh, his hand. I mean, in one hand he had that big stick, and then in his other hand he had his subjects. And God says, all right, you know the hand of Pharaoh, but now, now you're going to see my hand. And I love that. And we know the story. And we see that this story, really, we, we, we need to remember this. This is not Moses versus Pharaoh. This is Yahweh versus Pharaoh. This is God's hand versus Pharaoh's hand. In fact, this thing has got, gotten really personal for God. And I'll show you how personal it's gotten for him. Look at uh, Exodus 4 verse 22. I like to hear the Bible, the page is turning. That means that you guys are looking at it yourself. I mean, the way you learn the Bible is not just by listening to me, but you put your eyes, and your eyes look at the text, and your, and your mind and heart drink it in. Exodus 4, verse 22, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Just think about that. Think about what this tells us, first of all, about God. Because the Bible tells us that God is a lot of things. It tells us that God is the creator. It tells tells us that God is the ruler, that he's the king of all kings, that he is the Lord of lords. But probably more than anything, God is father. With the heart of a father. 
fact, look at how, he, how, how this continues in verse 23. And I told you, let my son go, Pharaoh, that he may worship me. But Pharaoh, you refuse to let him go. You refuse to let my firstborn son go, so I will kill your firstborn son, Pharaoh. And of course, that's where this whole, whole thing is, is going. Um, I don't know how this makes you feel when you read this about God, but I'll tell you what, I love it. This is a father talking here. This isn't just a force. This is a personal father. And I'm a dad. And I have stories. I have stories of when people have mistreated and bullied my son. Stories that I would not share on a Sunday morning. Trust me. Because when, 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 when my sons or daughter are, are mistreated or bullied, it elicits something inside of me that's, that, that's intense. And I know what it is. It's my intense love for my children. I, I, I love them. And Hosea 11 verse 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. That's God talking. And out of Egypt, I called my son. In fact, that's what Exodus is about. It's it's about a people who go from being slaves to becoming sons. Sons of God. I love Deuteronomy 1, 30 and 31. I read this all the time and just pray this into my heart because God's saying, he says, do not be terrified, do not be afraid of them, the Lord your God who is going before you, he will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. And there you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. And as God, he's, he's a father and, and, and as a father, he fights for us the way a father fights for their family. And, and he goes before us the way a father goes before his kids. And, he, and at times, he even carries us the way a father will carry their son or their daughter. I love this about God. In fact, in Hosea 11, Hosea 11 continues. It says, God speaking, it was I who taught Israel to walk. That's what a father does with their little kids. They, they teach him how to walk. He says, it was I who taught Israel how to walk. I took them by the arms, but they did not realize that it was I who healed them. And I led them with cords of human kindness and with ties of love. And to the one, and to them, I was like one who, who lifts a little child to his cheek. He says, I bent down. I bent down to feed them. He says, but Israel did not trust me. And here's the deal, when all seems lost, or, or, or when it feels hopeless, or when life seems unfair, or when the spirit gets crushed, or, or, or life bullies us, we need to know that we have a father who intensely loves us the way a father loves a son or daughter. Now in verses 2 to 8 of chapter 6, God speaks to Moses. And this speech that he, he gives to Moses might be the most profoundly hopeful and profoundly most beautiful thing in the whole Bible. In fact, in the actual Hebrew, this is a work of art because what does it begin with? Look at verse 2. 
Look at it. How does God begin this speech? With, with what four words? I am the Lord. How does the speech end in verse 8? Say it. I'm the Lord. Okay, so this thing begins with I am the Lord. It ends with, the, with I am the Lord. And then what you need to know is that there's probably um, a, a chiasm going on. And if you don't remember what chiasm is, think Big Mac. You know, think that sandwich technique of, of, of writing or saying something where you have bread and bread and then you have cheese and cheese and then you have uh, meat and meat and then right in the middle is what? The heart of the whole thing. And what's the heart of this? Chiasm. Look at verse 6. I am the Lord. In fact, in Hebrew, from where it starts with I am the Lord, to right in the middle where it, it, it's God says I am the Lord, there are 50 words in the Hebrew Take a guess then from this middle I am the Lord to the end of the I am the Lord, how many words there are? 50. In other words, Moses, Pharaoh isn't the Lord. It may look like it, it may feel like it, but Pharaoh isn't in control. Pharaoh doesn't hold your future. Pharaoh doesn't get to decide if you're slaves. Pharaoh doesn't get to tell you who you are and dictate who you will be. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. You know what else I like? In chapter 5, in verse 2, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord? God's going to say, I'm the Lord, Pharaoh. And listen, this is not to say that, 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 that Pharaoh isn't a force because he's a strong force and, and he continues to be a strong force. There, there are many Pharaohs today that are putting their claim on your life. But do you know that today? Do you know that he is the Lord? Do you, do, do you know that? Do you know that in the chaos of our world or in the chaos of our country or in the chaos of our schools, the, the, the chaos of our politics, the, the, the chaos of our neighborhoods, the chaos maybe even of your own family or the chaos maybe that might exist in your marriage or even in your very own life, that Yahweh is the Lord. He reigns and he rules and he is in control of everything. He's the Lord. And so if that's the, the, the skeleton of, of this speech to Moses, uh, God telling Moses who he is, that he is the Lord, the, the, the flesh then that God puts on, on, on this skeleton is, is just as beautiful because first of all, uh, the flesh, through the flesh, God's going to uh, tell Moses what he's done, followed by what he will do. And the first thing that he says in terms of what he has already done is he says, look, Moses, I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. In fact, if you read Genesis, Genesis records at least three times where God appeared to Abraham, two times where God appears to Isaac, one time where God appears to Jacob. And one time was a wrestling match. Now, what does it mean that God appeared to them? 
Because the Bible also says that no one has ever seen God. And see, the way that uh, this verse in Exodus reads is, most literally, it says, I was seen by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They saw me. And this is where I'm going to use the New Testament to make sense of this. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is seen in the face of Christ. To see God is to see Christ, and to see Christ is to see the face of God. So in other words, when it says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saw God, it means they saw who? Christ. In fact, in Numbers 12, 7 and 8, it's also going to talk about Moses uh, also seeing God. God saying, I didn't just come to you in dreams or in a vision, but you saw my very form, and I spoke words, and you heard those very words. But now I think in our text today, God is going to tell something that Moses doesn't even know about. And maybe this is just because he was raised in Pharaoh's court. The covenant. And the reason I say this is go to Exodus 2. And when you uh, get to verse 23, it says the Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God and God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked on the Israelites and Yadah, he was concerned for them. But that's just a preview. That's just uh, the author uh, describing uh, God at this part in our story to set up the, the experience now that Moses has with God at the burning bush. And look at what God says to Moses in chapter 3, verse 7. And the Lord now said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. But there's no mention there of the covenant. But now in our text today, it's like God's saying to Moses, all right, Moses, you're ready to receive a truth about me, the truth that's behind everything I'm about to do. And that is, it's my covenant that I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is where we need to know about this covenant because God starts his whole, um, sets in motion his whole plan to redeem the world through a covenant. Tells Abraham to leave everything. And he says, all right, Abraham, you leave everything and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bend the knee to you. I'm going to give you a land and then I'm going to give you a son. And through this son, you're going to become a great people and you're going to live on that land. And then through this people, this people, God's people and God's place will come my redemption. And within all of that, maybe one of the most significant chapters in the Bible is Genesis 15 because Abraham trusted God and he left everything, but he waits and he waits and he waits. And finally, it's like, God, wait a second. I kept my end of the the covenant, but what about you? Where's my son? And I love what God says. God tells Abraham, Abraham, look up. See the stars? Abraham says, yes. He says, you will have that many sons. And the Bible says that Abraham trusted God and was credited to him as righteousness. But Abraham's not done with God yet. Abraham says, God, you need to prove this. I need proof. 
And then God says, all right, Abraham, you want proof? Then go get five specific animals. And what's interesting is God doesn't tell Abraham what to do with these animals, but Abraham knows what to do with these animals because he knows what God is doing, that God is is sealing his promises in a formal covenant ceremony. And this is the way covenants were made in that day, is the animals would be brought to uh, both of the parties, and the lesser party would cut the animals in half and put one half of the animals on this side, another half on this side, so that the blood could form in the middle. And then the, the, the greater party, the one who put the covenant, covenant together and established it, would be the first to take off his sandals and walk through that blood to say that if I don't keep my end of the covenant, may I be torn to pieces like these, like these animals. Then the lesser party would follow suit, take off their sandals, and walk through the pieces. And the Bible says that God came down that day, first this, smoke. And he walked through the pieces to say, Moses, if I don't keep my side of the covenant, may you do this to me. And then, and this is how I see this being played out. I see Moses getting up. I see Moses taking off his sandals. And then I see God just saying, Moses, step aside. You step in that blood and you're a dead man because you cannot keep the covenant. And so God passed through those pieces, not just once, but twice to say to to, to Abraham, Abraham, whether you fail or whether I fail, which we know God could never fail, it's going to be on me. I will be cut to pieces. And then when this whole ceremony is done, God looks to Abraham and he says, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own. They will be enslaved. They will be be mistreated for 400 years in Egypt. But I will punish that nation that they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. And guess where we are in our story today? We are exactly 400 years from the covenant that God made to Abraham. And then look at our text today. Look at verse 4. He says, I also established my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them this land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Also, Moses, you need to know that I've heard the growing of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I'm remembering my covenant. And then it all culminates in verse 8. I will bring you out of the land I swore with uplifted hands to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Um, again, it's, it, it's that, that I swore this to them. I had my hand in the air, I promise. I'm going to tell you something. God, when he makes a promise, he keeps it. And God is forever bound to this covenant, and it's going to be through this covenant that God will forever be bound to Abraham and to his people. I love in Hosea 11, where God just asks, I mean, it's all this stuff about Israel, my firstborn son, whom I love, how can I give you up? He can't. Because his love is an everlasting love. He is a promise-making God. He is a promise-keeping God. And what I want us to know this morning is that these promises are to us. Because like Paul says in, in, in 2 Corinthians, he says all God's promises are what? All of his promises are yes in Christ. Do you know the promises of God? 
Do you know that this book is full of promises? But see, if you don't know the book, you're not going to know the promises. But not only are we asked to know the promises of God, it, it, it goes further than that. We're, 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 we're to have our lives built on these promises. We're to stand on these promises. Are you? I mean, look at all that God promises to be just in our text here, Exodus 6. I mean, there are four promises here that if, if we knew them and we claimed them, we made them our, our own and we, we, we built our life upon them, we'd be changed forever. Look at verse 6, the first promise, after I am the Lord, is I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Egypt in Hebrew is Mitzrayim. Do you remember what Mitzrayim means? It means to be walled in. That's why it's called the house of bondage. See, I think we all understand this morning what it means to be in bondage to some extent. For some of us, it might be the bondage of our appetites. For others, it might be the bondage caused by, by an addictive substance. Or it could be um, the bondage caused by addictive behaviors like gluttony or, or sex or gambling or always needing to buy something or having the next new thing. For some of us, it might be the bondage of a relationship, of, of just needing this person so much to, to validate us and to get our worth and our sense of identity. And so therefore, that person has power over us to master us and lord it over. For others of us, it might be the bondage of pleasing and always having this need of being liked. Or maybe it's the bondage of a job or a career. All, all of this and the money that you have that has come to define you. I mean, we live in Egypt. And we are slaves to so many things. You know what God promises? I will take you out of that. And not only will he take us out of it, but the second promise is, I will free you from that. I will free you from slavery. In fact, this word free in the Hebrew literally means to deliver. And you're asking the question, well, what's the difference between God freeing us and God delivering us? I'll tell you what, Israel needed a lot more than just to be taken out of that place of slavery. Because if you're a slave to something for such a long period of time, it starts to become a part of who you are. It becomes a part of your nature. It becomes a part of your identity. And so if you've been a slave your whole life, you need more than just an emancipation proclamation. You need to be healed. You need to be delivered from, from that slave nature and that slave identity that's been so pushed into the core of your being. So God not only says, well, I take you out, but I will deliver you. I'll heal you of that slave nature. I will heal you of that slave identity. I will give you a new identity. And what's the new identity that God gives us? Well, when you understand this in light of the book of Exodus, it's God taking a people who are slaves. Now you're firstborn son. Or if you keep going in Exodus, you're slaves. Now you're my segula, my treasured possession. Is that part of your identity today? 
that the God of the universe who knows you, who made you, not a hair can fall from your head without him knowing about it. He looks at you the way a father looks at a firstborn son. He looks at you as his most treasured possession. God says, I will take you out. I will deliver you. God says, I will also redeem you. Now, redeem is, is this whole idea of purchasing. And I don't know if you know this, but God literally had to buy them out of slavery. He had to purchase them. Whenever you purchase something, there's always a cost. And there's a payment that needs to be paid. So for God to save and deliver Israel, there will be a great cost. Without this payment, there's no redemption. And what is this cost? What's it going to cost God? So I think we're already in the Exodus story getting hints of the kind of payment that must be paid because when, when, when God says, go tell Pharaoh that if he doesn't let my firstborn son go, then I will kill his firstborn son. That's the kind of payment. That's what it's going to cost. See, that's the kind of payment that a holy God demands. It's something as great as our own firstborn sons or daughters. I'll tell you, it's the debt that every human family must pay to a holy God. It's a debt as great as our own firstborn son. And I'm going to tell you something. The ancients understood this. Moderns don't have the courage to swallow it. Abraham, Abraham, it's time to pay up. Give me your firstborn son. Someone must pay. And see, what we find over and over again in the story is that um, God allows for a substitute to, to replace that firstborn son. Um, something or to take the place of the firstborn son. And, and, and oftentimes that substitute is a lamb. It's a lamb that's substituted for Isaac, and Isaac's life is spared, and it's going to be a lamb in the Exodus story that's going to spare God's people, that's going to save them and redeem them. And it's going to be a lamb in the great Exodus. Maybe the most significant aspect of this whole fourfold promise is when God says, I will take you as my own. I will be your God, and you will know me. You will yada me. In fact, this I will take you is, is the Hebrew verbiage for, for a wedding or, or for marriage. And in other words, what God is saying is, I, I, I'm going to marry you. And I think this is why God wants this, this three-day party in the desert with his people. I think he wants to put on a grand wedding ceremony. He wants to take them to the desert to marry them. Because this is where the whole Exodus story is going, that right now God is wooing Israel. He's courting her so he can take Israel to his holy mountain and take Israel to be his bride. But I'll tell you something. God never takes us out of Egypt as an end to itself. He takes us out so he can take us in to himself. God made us for love. And our God is a lover. And he made us to know him, to love him. Now, if you ask a Jew, what is salvation? 
They will say it's a lot more than God just forgiving our sins, which is just massive in and of itself. But they will say it's these four dimensions. It's Salvation is God taking us out. It's God delivering us. It's God purchasing us for himself. It's God marrying us. And see, by the time of Jesus, the Passover, which is the party that God instructs his people to celebrate every year to remember the Exodus... In fact, this whole celebration, it's centered around a meal because the meal itself tells the whole Passover Exodus story. And so literally by the time of Jesus, this whole meal is centered around four cups of wine. In fact, these four cups of wine are based on the four promises of Exodus 6, 6 and 7. So to introduce this whole meal, the, the, the host would, would, would take the first cup and he would raise it. And he would say, this is the cup of blessing. This speaks of God's promise that he will bring us out. And we drink this cup to proclaim that we no longer live in bondage. Then right before the meal, by the way, we'll smash a cup this morning, so... (laughs) The host would lift a second cup. And you'd say, this is the cup of salvation, and this speaks of God's promise that he's going to deliver you. And when we drink this cup, we know that we're not slaves anymore, that we're delivered, not just from a place of slavery, but from our slave nature and our slave identity. Then they would eat the meal. And through the eating of the meal, the story would be told of the exodus. And then the cup after dinner, after the meal, would be raised. This is the third cup, the cup of redemption. And with this cup, God promises, I will redeem you. And we drink this cup to know that God has purchased us, that he's given us new birth, that we're born again. But of course, the question remains, doesn't it? It does in my life. What happens if I go back to Egypt? What happens if I slip back into that whole thing? And that's where the fourth cup comes in. This is sometimes called the cup of marriage. This is God, God's promise. I will take you. And see, we, we, we drink this cup with, the, with this assurance that we forever belong to God as, as his segulah, as his treasured possession. I don't know what you're thinking right now. But when I look at my journey into Christ and my journey with Christ, it's like, this is, this, this is it. I mean, this is what God did. He, he, he brought me to the end of myself, and he, and he brought me out of Egypt. He brought me out of the mud and the mire. God also, he set me free. I'm no longer a slave. And not only did he set me free from that place, but he gave me a whole new identity, a way for me to know who I am. I have to hear his voice every day. I have to preach it to myself. God's saying to me, Rod, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. He redeemed me. He healed me. He made me whole from the inside out. He took me to himself. I'm his. He is mine. His presence right now lives in me. I'm covered as a husband covers his bride. I'm covered by him. 
And I want to tell us, tell you this morning that these promises, these four promises are not just to the Israelites, but these are God's promises to us because all God's promises are yes in Christ. And we can build our life on this. Are you? Do you know what happened when Moses actually took this gospel to the people, how they responded? Look at verse 9, chapter 6. So Moses uh, reported this gospel to the Israelites, but they did not shema. They did not listen to him because of their discouragement, harsh labor. Wow. They didn't listen to him. Why? Well, the text tells us. Moses, we already listened to you once, only to see that situation go from bad to worse. And so I think their, their circumstances left them discouraged. They're hopeless. They were scared to hope again. In fact, we know one of the ways of, of, of avoiding being hurt is, is to just refuse to hope. I mean, that's what a pessimist is. A pessimist is actually someone who's just afraid to hope. And it's hard to hope when life hits us. It's hard to hope when we've hoped in the past only to be betrayed by that hope. I think many of us today would rather be unhappy than risk disappointment. But I found something this week within the ancient Jewish Midrash, which is commentary on the, the, the biblical text, the Torah, that goes back sometimes before the time of Christ, the commentary on this actual uh, set of verses that we're looking at this mor- morning said this, because the Israelites were so scared of Pharaoh, they protested to Moses, can a slave serve two masters? And then they said, we are slaves to Pharaoh and afraid to go against his decrees. Interesting. Can a slave serve two masters? Jesus' answer? No. Because Jesus says no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and he will despise the other. We cannot, says Jesus, serve both God and mammon. Can't serve both God and Pharaoh. In fact, one of the main themes that runs throughout the course of Exodus is the eight or nine times where God is going to say to Pharaoh, let my people go that they might worship me. Pharaoh, let my people go that they might worship me. This word for worship in Hebrew is avodah. Avodah literally means to serve or to work. The root is the word aved, which means slave or servant. Obadiah, which also the name that comes from that means servant of Yah. So this word avodah throughout Exodus is used over and over again in Exodus to describe Israel's service, their avodah, their hard labor to Pharaoh. But in all those other places, God says, let my people go that they may avodah, not you, Pharaoh, but me. Because we cannot serve both God and our careers. 
We cannot serve both God and our success. We cannot serve both God and money. We cannot serve both God and a relationship. We cannot serve both God and ourselves. And sadly to say, when you read Exodus 14, verse 12, the people make their choice on whom they will serve. And they say to Moses, we will serve Pharaoh. And I want you to know that our service to Pharaoh and all the goodies that Pharaoh provides that we call Egypt is nothing less than a form of worship. In fact, right now, there's a cosmic struggle going on for our worship. Because all of us will worship someone or something. We will put our hope and trust in someone. And I'm going to tell you, whatever we worship owns us. Whatever we worship owns our time, it owns our money, it owns our heart, it owns our lives, it owns our future. And we will become what we worship. And the Bible is here to tell us that we worship Pharaoh... And we will end up in bondage. But Exodus is here to teach us about the God of the universe who wants to set us free from Pharaoh so we can worship him, where we can go from that slavery to his sonship, where we can go from slaves to God's segulah. In fact, Exodus is going to end with what? Does anybody know how the whole book of Exodus ends? The last 15 chapters. Build me a sanctuary. It's going to be a people who go from being slaves to worshipers. And the way that all these realities, these wonderful promises... God's freedom, God's deliverance, God's redemption, the way these realities get pushed in our lives, um, the, the joy of experiencing the marriage with God, the way they get pushed in our lives is through worship. When we worship him alone, when we worship him with everything that we are and everything that we have, when we delight in him, when we treasure him, when we serve and love him with our whole hearts, Jesus came to the end of his life and he set his face like flint to celebrate that last Passover with his disciples. And he says it, he's like, I'm desiring so much to celebrate this Passover with you. In fact, he carefully arranged it so that they could experience this Passover meal together. And the Gospels say that after supper, Jesus took the cup. Which cup is the cup after supper? It's the third cup. And he says, this cup is the new covenant, which is now in my blood, which is poured out for you. Drink from it, all of you. And then its text says, he stops. Because he says, I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine. I'm not going to drink that fourth cup until I drink it anew with you at the wedding feast of the Lamb. I'll save the cup of marriage for the very end when we're all together. But this cup is the cup of Jesus' blood. It's God keep 
keeping his promise to Abraham. It's the means by which God purchased us. And it cost God his firstborn son. So we could be firstborn sons today. What other God will do that? What other God will lay his life down for you? What other God will die for you? What other God will stand in your place to spare you? Pharaoh won't. And Jesus came to the world to celebrate Passover. He literally became the Passover because he hears our cries, he sees our despair, and he comes to offer us these four promises to us, just like he did to our forefathers in Egypt. And with this, what God, the God of the universe is saying, with all that I am and all that I have, I give myself to you. And this morning, the table is set before us. How dare we drink this in an unworthy manner? If he gave it all for us, and he's a God who says, worship me alone. For those of you this morning who want to say to him, yeah, I've blown it. I have all these things in my life that I love too much. Sometimes I love more than you, God, but I want to get back. I want to love you with my whole heart, my whole soul, and all my strength. With all that I am, I give myself to you, God. The table set before us. Let's eat and drink. Let's pray. God, in a world where there's no promise-making or promise-keeping anymore, And even my own heart, Lord, can be so fickle sometimes. You are a promise-making God. You are a promise-keeping God. And like with Abraham, and then with Moses, through Jesus Christ, you invite us into the covenant. Or you want to set us free and you want to deliver us and you want to redeem us and you want to take us as your own. This morning, God, I just pray that there would be repentance in my heart and that there would be repentance in this place that we would let go, Lord, of all those other loves in our lives, God, and things that have control and mastery over us, God. Help us. Save us. Deliver us. Redeem us you offer all of that to us right now in Jesus.